just um, two months before 9-11, uh, the attacks on New York City and Washington, D.C., Fox Television broadcast the first of their series called 24. The main, voila, the main protagonist, of course, is Jack Barr, um, played by Kiefer Sutherland, um, an agent of the Los Angeles Counterterrorism Unit. The first episode, again filmed before 9-11, focuses on a terrorist attempt to blow up a plane and assassinate the Democratic presidential candidate. But the series' main focus, in fact, is on torture. Subjects in the series, I'm sure some of you have seen it, are electrocuted, beaten, cut with knives, burnt, um, suffocated. Their families are threatened with execution. In the series, torture, of course, works. The suspects almost always confess. And the series, of course, won an Emmy for Outstanding Drama and had a weekly audience of 15 million viewers. And millions more, of course, bought the DVDs. So although it's not the first to depict torture as necessary in the fight against a particularly pernicious enemy, 24, I think, is typical of a trend within film and within television since 9-11. While in earlier films... I'm having trouble with this... Um, okay... While in earlier films, such as 1976 Marathon Man, starring, of course, Dusty Hoffman, the hero was, in fact, a victim of torture. More recent representations present the hero as perpetrators of torture. In the first five series of 24 alone, there were 67 scenes of torture. The Bauer character was portrayed as this kind of morally dedicated, self-sacrificing officer of the people, hell-bent only on safeguarding democracy, who would not torture if it would save hundreds of lives. In 24, torturing caricatured villains is portrayed as some, in some ways redemptive. Um, enable, ennobling the good guys. Asbar reiterates a number of times a number of different forms in this series. As he says, I don't want to bypass the Constitution, but these are extraordinary times, extraordinary circumstances. In 24, as well as hundreds of other films, torture has also devolved to ordinary citizens, and I think this is really important, rather than trained, primarily trained members of the security forces. Indeed, five of the eight series of 24 show Bauer working independently of the counterterrorism unit. The series encourages, in other words, a sort of neoliberal approach to fighting terrorism, in which we all become, in a sense, citizen torturers. Now, I don't actually think we should underestimate the role of series such as 24 in lowering the bar to torture. There's been a number of researches done in this field, but much, much of this research actually shows that 
Um, when students, for example, are shown films depicting torture, they not only become more favorable to such practices, but also more willing to publicly endorse their support. For example, writing to Congress for le official legitimation of such practices. Ubiquitous torture scenes <laughs> in 24 were also regarded as actually very, very dangerous for, um, by the military as well. Indeed, US Army Brigadier General Patrick Finnegan, the Dean of the United uh, States Military Academy at West Point, warned that visited uh, the filmmakers as they were making the film, the films, the series, and warned that cadets at West Point, who would later be deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, were imbibing the wrong view of what was legal in war. The cadets love 24, he told one reporter, and would tell him, if torture is wrong, then what about 24? These cadets, almost universally, he argued, believed that Bohr's, Bohr's um, actions were both patriotic and necessary. In 24, Bohr embodies, I think, three aspects of the torture debate in the contemporary period. First, the return of torture in Western democracies in the late 20th century. Second, changes in the form of torture, including the shift in British and American torture literature to torture light. And third, the problematic uses of ticking bomb arguments. And I'm going to look at these three in turn, and I'm going to then conclude with some reflections on how opponents of torture may uh, be able to counter such um, trends. But firstly, what is torture? I mean, this is actually a very contentious um, question that I don't have time to, to go into in the next 40 minutes. While admitting that the definition is based on a particular Western construct of the law and has been criticized and critiqued by many legal scholars, I am going to be following, nevertheless, the definition given by the United Nations Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman and Degrading Treatment and Punishments. According to this convention, torture is any act by which severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a person for such purposes as obtaining from him or a third person information or a confession, punishing him for an act he or a third person has committed or is suspected of committing, having committed, or intimidating or coercing him or a third person for any reason based on discrimination of any kind, when such pain and suffering is inflicted by or at the instigation of, or with the consent or acquiescence of a public official or other person acting in an official um, capacity. I mean, I think importantly in this um, definition, torture is an, act, is an activity undertaken by state authorities, and it includes psychological as well as physical harms. The main aims of torture include harvesting information, eliciting confessions, spreading terror, and exerting power over groups perceived to threaten the state or its citizens. 
It involves a range of practices, which of course have changed over time. Medieval rack, of course, being replaced by electric shocks, psychological forms of torture um, uh, and stress positions substituted for what used to be more bloody kinds of cruelty. Because these do not necessarily leave a physical mark, the letter the torture light kind of practices have grown. And in part, this is due to the increased international surveillance by human rights organizations. Now, although state torture was outlawed in France 1780s and in Europe in the 19th century, in the late 20th and 21st centuries, it is returned as an instrument of state policy. And for many commentators, this is actually surprising especially given that the reintroduction of torture during the Second World War, as well as by authoritarian regimes in the immediate post-war years, were routinely condemned by um, commentators on both the political left and right. So why was torture rejected from the 18th century, and why in liberal democracies has it more recently been revived? Again, these questions have generated a massive literature, but generally, I think scholars have drawn attention to four shifts. In the 18th century, for example, opposition to torture tended to focus on broad assumptions about civilized values, its inefficiency, and the way it brutalizes torturers. Torture was increasingly regarded as unreliable. It was thought to be used to indiscriminately. It was unjust because innocent people were much more susceptible to the pain than hardened criminals. According to this argument, the Enlightenment interest in the individual and his or her rights followed a rise of a new sensibility. Um, increasing respect for the bodily integrity of other people, both forged and advanced a sentimental sympathy for the human lot. Now, other scholarship has turned instead to explanations based on the introduction of new forms of discipline, changing norms around legal proof, and notions of pain to explain the decline of torture from the 18th century. Most famously, of course, Michel Foucault argued that state authorities increasingly recognized that there were more effective ways to create docile populations, to discipline rather than torture. John Langben points to changes in law the formidably high standards of legal proof that were required to convict criminals and traitors in earlier periods in which there had to be an eyewitness or a confession were relaxed. This meant that wrongdoers could be punished for their crimes without the need for a forced confession. Finally, historians such as Lisa Silverman and many others draw attention to the role played by ideas about pain in the torture debates. Prior to the 18th century, this argument goes, pain fulfilled a positive function, both in terms of individual redemption and rights of communal uh, purification. For the community, 
trial by ordeal, agonizing punishments in public were sacrificial rites, often accompanied by great festivals um, to celebrate the community's recovery from injury. By the 18th century, though, such ideas were in decline. Pain was secularized, no longer viewed as a way to the truth. Now, the problem with these four arguments is that they actually don't help us explain why there would be a revival of torture from the late 20th century in countries such as the US and the UK. Indeed, these four theories would actually predict an increased abhorrence to torture in recent years. To explain this, I think we need to pay attention to significant shifts in the nature of modern wars, especially the dramatic rise in three block wars, as well as unconventional counterinsurgency armies, the growth in the number of prisoners of war, and conflicts on home soil. Unlike the world wars of the mid, early and mid-20th century, in which individual soldiers who had been taken prisoner possessed, in fact, very little information that could be of value to the opposite opposing side. In fact, the opposite was the case with prisoners in counterinsurgency conflicts and the war on terror. Three block wars, that is, wars in which um, within a three-block radius, soldiers were expected to fight insurgents, um, control riots, and spread peace, not only increased the value of individual intelligence, but also blurred the identity of the enemy. Although it's important to observe that the pro-torture debates began in the US prior to 9-11, it is nevertheless true that with the movement of terroristic violence to the homeland, torture was increasingly seen as necessary. Combined with the incredible expansion of technologies and techniques of surveillance, the ability to potentially identify actors who might either have information or be useful to terrorize in advance of any attack was increasingly plausible. Now, in response to these shifts, opponents of torture have employed very different, began employing very, very different arguments compared to their predecessors. 20th century anti-torture anti activists focused more on human rights and the psychological cost to victims. Trauma became the catchword, therapy, the solution, increasingly aware that torture was being authorized by the highest state authorities. Activists have also increasingly moved attention away from issues of national criminal justice systems towards higher authorities, that is, international law. Nevertheless, torture has seen a revival. The Spanish government tortured... Um, tortured members, Northern Ireland, IRA suspects, detention facilities, of course, in Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay, torture openly practiced and defended. President Trump has repeatedly promised to reinstitute torture as official government policy. He boasted that his administration would bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. 
More worrying, though, pro-torture policies are endorsed by a very significant proportion of the American population. Um, two years ago, 63% of Americans and 82% of Republicans agreed with the proposition that torture against suspected terrorists to obtain information about terrorist activities could be sometimes or often justified. What used, in other words, to be unspeakable, um, at least to voice in mainstream um, uh, contexts, um, is now um, no longer viewed with abhorrence. Its pros, torture's pros and its cons, are in fact widely debated, something that would be inconceivable if the topic was, for example, genocide. Some critics of this trend have even argued that the very act of debating whether torture is legitimate or not is a form of collusion. As philosopher Savoy Zizek explained, discussions that do not advocate torture outright but simply introduce it as a legitimate topic of debate are even more dangerous than an explicit endorsement of torture. The mere induction of torture as a legitimate topic allows us to entertain the idea while retaining a pure conscience. The mass circulation of torture images and rhetoric has dulled their political impact, becoming rapidly assimilated into a society that's already sort of saturated with spectacle. In the words of popular radio show host, um, Rush Limbaugh, a close friend, by the way, of the creator and executive producer of 24, referring to photographic evidence of the abuses at Abu Ghraib, he said, you know, if you look at, if you really, if you look at these pictures, I mean, I don't know if it's just me, but it, it looks like anything you'd see Madonna or Brittany Spears do on stage. And maybe, yeah, you get an NEA, National Endowment for the Arts, grant for something like this. I mean, this is something you see on stage at Lincoln Center for, from an NEA grant, maybe on Sex and the City, the movie. Immediately after the revelations at Abu Ghraib, men and women posed photographs of themselves on the internet doing a lindy, as they called it, doing a lindy. So detailed internet instructions on doing a lindy starts with the phrase, find a victim who deserves to be lindied. Make sure you have a friend nearby with a camera ready to capture the lindy. Stick a cigarette or pen politically correctness there, in your mouth and allow it to hang slightly below the horizontal. Tilt your upper body slightly forward, but lean back on your right leg. Make a hitchhiking gesture with your right hand and extend your right arm so it's roughly in the same position as if you were holding a rifle. Keep your arm slightly bent, point in the direction of the victim and smile. The smile, of course, was important. It bestowed individuality, agency, in contrast to the degraded and objectified victim. Now, I love this image. Um, of much greater importance is the fact that, of course, torture is routinely justified in uh, reputable legal circles. The distinguished lawyer and civil libertarian Alan Dershowitz even defended the use of torture on the grounds of human rights. In his words... We cannot reason with them, terrorists, but we can, if we work at it, outsmart them, set traps for them, cage them, or kill them. 
It's no coincidence, of course, that he's using the language um, more typically used to refer to the abuse of animals. The tortured are no longer fully human. He proposed allowing judges to issue torture warrants, which would license authorities to torture individuals. He called them cunning beasts of prey, uh, suspected of concealing information about terrorist acts. The individualist, self-sacrificial torturer, such as Jack Borrow, would be replaced by the objective judge, and the needle under the fingernail would, of course, be sterilized. Dershowitz is, of course, unfortunately not alone. Michael Ignatitev, formerly the director of the Harvard University Carr Center for Human Rights and a leading member of the Liberal Party in Canada, published, of course, a book called The Lesser Evil, Politic, political ethics in the age of terror, where he publicly accepted torture on political realist grounds. It was, in other words, the lesser evil. The first sentence in his book reads, when democracies fight terrorism, they are defending the proposition that their political life should be free of violence. But defeating terror requires violence, it may also require coercion, deception, secrecy, and the violation of rights. Like so many others, these and other commentators argue for an uncompromising, absolute condemnation of terrorist acts, but they turn suddenly into utilitarians when um, assessing torture practices committed um, by Americans. The organizers of a symposium entitled Torture, when, if ever, is it permissible, hosted by the University of San Francisco, even invited Janis Karpinski, the former US commander of the military police brigade that oversaw Abu Ghraib while torture was taking place in its cells to give the symposium's key lecture. Two speakers from the Dean Law School, Melbourne, Australia, um, though got, really got the headlines, um, when, although they insisted that torture was, when they insisted that torture was not only legitimate but necessary. So Mirko Bagaric and Julie Clark's justification for torture at this symposium um, was eventually published by the very prestigious University of San Francisco Law Review under the provocative title, Not Enough Official Torture in the World the circumstances in which torture is morally justified. For them, torture warrants, in fact, didn't go far enough. Rather, they pointed out that torture is indeed morally defensible, not just pragmatically desirable. Now, most of these debates that I've talked about so far anyway come from American and Australian legal scholars and commentators. It's important, I think, though, not to fall into the trap of thinking in terms of American um, exceptionalism. Britain, too, of course, has its own history of torture, stemming largely from counterinsurgency operations. Palestine, Malaya, Kenya, Cyprus, etc., Malaya, um, Persian Gulf, and so on. But torture has also um, been much closer at hand, most notably in Northern Ireland at the peak of the Troubles, where there were fears that, in fact, Northern Ireland was on the brink, brink of a civil war. Torture practices followed, on, followed the introduction of internment without trial. 
um, from um, August 1971. On the first day alone, more than 340 Republicans were arrested. An intelligence research unit at Marisfield, Sussex, put on a course in sensory deprivation, as well as other topics, for the Royal Ulster Constabulary. The interrogative techniques, known as the five techniques, food deprivation, sleep deprivation, hooding, noise bombardment, voice standing, learned at this unit, were then used against prisoners suspected of IRA involvement. 14 detainees were subjected to the five techniques at Hut 60 in Ballykenny Airfield in County Derry. This was the special interroga interrogation centre and the torturers were 20 um, RUC special branch officers. When the torture became publicly known, the government commissioned first the Compton Report and then the Barker Inquiry. The Compton Report decreed that the physical treatment of the men constituted a measure of ill treatment but had not been carried out with a view to hurting or degrading the men. Similarly, the majority report of the three-person Parker Inquiry, signed by the two Privy Councillors, Lord Barker and Boyd Carpenter, concluded that there was no reason to rule out these five techniques on moral grounds, adding that it is possible to operate them in a manner consistent with the higher standings, standards of our society. Lord Gardiner's minority report, however, condemned this approach. Gardiner insisted that torture was likely to result in lasting distress and had contributed no intelligence that could not have been got in other ways. Gardner argued that the form of interrogation used by British interrogators during the Second World War, that is, the use of informers and hidden uh, microphones, had in fact been much more effective. In his words, the blame for this sorry story, if blame there be, must lie with those who, many years ago, decided that in emergency conditions and colonial-type situations, we should abandon our legal well-tried and highly successful wartime interrogation methods and replaced them by procedures that which were secret, illegal, not morally justifiable and alien to the traditions of what I believe still to be the greatest democracy in the world. Gardner's minority report, in conjunction with moral outrage both in Northern Ireland and internationally, divided Ted Heath's Conservative government and Cabinet Home Secretary Reginald Maudling um, argued that it was important to remember that the lives of British soldiers and of innocent civilians depended on intelligence. We are dealing here with an enemy who had no scruples and we should not be unduly squeamish over methods of interrogation in these circumstances. Reluctantly, Prime Minister Ted Heath accepted Lord Gardiner's minority report. Um, there's a big debate about the motives, but um, twofold probably. First, to prevent the case being taken to the European High, um, High Human Rights Commission, and secondly, because the government was preparing to initiate a radical change of policy in Ulster, direct rule, which necessitated concessions being made to, the Catholic, to Catholic opinion. 
2nd of March 1972, Heath announced that the five techniques were to be banned. Psychiatrists testified to the extreme long-term harm that had been inflicted on these torture victims, and by 1976, all 14 men had received financial compensation. However, the damage had already been done. Revelations of the abuse led to increased support for and membership of the IRA. Now, I've spent some time de detailing this case of Northern Ireland, in part because it shows powerful British jurists and politicians defending torture, but also because it's, I think, a textbook example of the use of what some people have called torture light, this sort of coy term for enhanced interrogation. Um, the term refers to a range of techniques that, unlike traditional forms of torture, do not physically mark the victim's body. And these techniques draw very heavily on psychological knowledges. Indeed, psychology pervades the entire 1963 Kerbach Counterintelligence Interrogation Manual, the CIA's instruction book for its operatives. The manual claimed that it hoped to bring pertinent modern knowledge to bear upon interrogation practices, a strategy, they said, which would bring huge advantages compared to a service which conducts its clandestine business in 18th century fashion. It was, Kubak insisted, no longer possible to discuss interrogation significantly without reference to the psychological research conducted in the past decade, although every effort has been made to report and interpret these finding in, findings in our own language in place of the terminology used by the psychologists. Torture was justified on the grounds of this latest research in psychology. And Torture light has proven to be really extremely rhetorically effective. It distinguished, of course, uncivilized, sadistic torturers who took pleasure in their ability, their powers to bruise, to wound, to batter, from respectable ones who con conscientiously employed the very latest psychological techniques to humiliate and degrade. These civilized torturers were professionally trained. Their work was framed in terms of the interests of democracy. They were often supported by medical personnel. Since there was a clearly delineated chain of command, their role could be spun as anti-terrorist officers or security agents rather than torturers public consciences were more easily soothed into turning a blind eye to what was being done in our name. The consciences of those who perpetrated torture light were also comforted by the idea that their acts were necessary for the greater good. They too were lulled into the sense of legitimacy. They observed rules. Their work was overseen by experts, including white-coated physicians, and psychologists. Thomas Nagel's concept of moral phenomenology, I think, is really useful here. Moral phenomenology observes that the way a person feels about carrying out a particular action affects how he morally assesses that act. 
an employee who is gathering intelligence or conducting an interrogation feels himself to be occupying a different moral position to a savage thug. Perhaps equally important was the way torture light breaks the physical and temporal relationship between the torturer and his victim. After all, the torturer need not even touch the victim, and much of the suffering occurs when the torturer is out of the room. In torture light, in other words, the victim becomes an active participant in his or her own abuse. Now, the CIA regarded this as a major advantage. Um, Kerbach boasted that, whereas pain inflicted on a person from outside himself may actually focus or intensify his will to resist, his resistance is likelier to be sapped by pain which he seems to inflict on himself. The manual continued, in the simple torture situation, the contest is one between the individual and his tormentor. When the individual is told to stand at attention for long periods, an intervening factor is introduced. The immediate source of pain is not the interrogator, but the victim himself. As long as the subject remains standing, he is attributing to his captor the power to do something worse to him. But there is actually no showdown of the ability of the interrogator to do so. The tortured person becomes guilty of an act of self-betrayal. Perpetrators felt less responsible, victims more responsible for their suffering, thus narrowing the moral distance between perpetrator and victim. The uh, phrase torture light also implies that the actions involved are, of course, less painful or damaging. Witnesses might even express a covert disdain towards people tortured in these ways. They might also admire torturers for having nobly submitted to a self-denying ordinance. The idea that torture light is less effective or causes less suffering is contrary, though, to the evidence. Rather, it is often more effective than the use of brutal physical force. Standing in a stress position for up to 24 hours, for example, can cause blisters, ankles to swell to twice their size, kidneys to fail, heart rates to soar, blackouts, hallucinations. A study of the tortured suspects in Belfast, 1971, who had been subjected to the five techniques, revealed that they had been extremely traumatized, sometimes experiencing a state of psychosis, a temporary madness with long-lasting after-effects, according to a psychiatrist report. In the longer term, torture light presented victims with serious problems in eliciting sympathy from their own communities and even human rights associations. As Darius Vijali pointed out in Torture and Democracy, when torturers turn to covert torture, they deliberately induce a breakdown in one's ability to show one's pain to others, stripping their words of the marks that give the speaker credibility. Not only does this make it incredibly difficult for victims to give witness to what was done to them, 
but it also enabled governments to deny the veracity of witness statements. Now, if the first crisis of torture is denial, psychological violence, torture, light is uh, less brutal, the second is the pernicious use of ticking bomb arguments. Bob Conrad, co-creator of 24, admitted that most terrorist experts will tell you that the ticking bomb situation never occurs in real life or very rarely, but on our show it happens every week. What used to be debated only in philosophy um, you know, classrooms is now mainstream, thanks in part to popular culture. The ticking um, time bomb scenario first appeared in Jean Latagui's best-selling novel, The uh, Centurions, 1960, which was written during the French um, occupation of Algeria. The novel tells the story of a hero, who torture, tortures a female Arab dissident and thus discovers a plot to explode a series of bombs all over Algeria. The hero has a limited amount of time to prevent this from happening. And this novel was inc incredibly um, important in easing the, con when it came out, in easing the conscience of French liberals about the torture being carried out in Algeria at, this at that time. Proponents of the ticking time bomb uh, defense of torture never tire of inventing different, extremely fantastical scenarios that most boil down to the situation described in this novel. In other words, a bomb placed in an unknown location, the bomb goes off, hundreds of civilians, including children, um, will be killed. It's impossible to know what public space should be evacuated. The terrorist is in custody but refusing to talk, time is running out. Should the authorities use non-lethal torture to get information that will save innocent people? It's a compelling scenario and has been, I think, um, the most um, effective um, um, argument in favor of torture. But it is, of course, as unrealistic and implausible as the TV series 24. It assumes just a vast amount of things, including knowledge of the attack, the arrest of the right suspect, the effectiveness of torture in getting the required information in time, and that torture will cease once the information has been received. Even if an actual terrorist has been apprehended, why should he give the correct information? Pain and or distress may actually incapacitate the tortured person, making him susceptible or simply incapable of distinguishing truth from lies. What if the person is actually innocent? How can he prove it? Innocent people have often lied in order to escape the pain. For example, after months of torture in Guantanamo Bay, British uh, detainee Rasul confessed to having known Osama bin Laden and Mohammed Atta, but he was later, in fact, exonerated by MI5, who found evidence that he'd been working at a branch of Curry's electrical store in West Midlands at the time. The fundamental problem, though, with the ticking bomb justification is that it doesn't work. Even the 2014 Senate torture report concluded that torture never resulted in credible evidence. Um, um, the trap 
in the ticking bomb argument is that it presents an extremely compelling hypothetical scenario as though it were empirical evidence. This realism, in other words, is pseudo-realism. Ticking bomb or not, torture counterproductive. Between 1987 and 1994, for example, official Statistics from the Israeli General Security Service reported that 23,000 Palestinians were interrogated and most of these were tortured. Yet, of course, there was no um, diminishing of terrorism. Indeed, using torture in these circumstances could increase terrorism, as it did in Algiers and Northern Ireland. But I think the central problem has been summed up by Jessica Wolfe. She explains that... I am just not interested in the permissibility of torture in any possible world or hypothetical example. I'm interested in the actual arrangements needed for even isolated instances of torture to occur. Because the ticking bomb argument is used in debates about the permissibility of torture on terrorist suspects in this world, Supporters of the ticking bomb argument cannot rely on purely hypothetical cases to support their claims. Moral arguments about the use of torture must take into consideration what permitting torture involves in reality, not in purely hypothetical examples. That torture might be justified in a hypothetical example, in a hypothetical world, gives absolutely no reason to think that it can be justified or legalized in this world. So what can be done? Obviously, there's no, no easy answer to this question, but I think some responses are more likely to be effective than others. Detailed cataloguing of the gruesome effects of physical and psychological violence has not been shown to cause sympathy to flow towards victims, nor generally has it resulted in calls for perpetrators to be held accountable. Indeed, because witnessing pain makes political claims, accounts that linger over fractured minds and bodies are perhaps more likely to lead to listeners turning away. Although it's important, obviously, to continue to fight for legal reform and support for international conventions against torture, it is also the case that they have not proven particularly effective um, in very recent years. Indeed, as we have seen, some of the top international lawyers are at the forefront of pro-torture rhetoric. Unfortunately, it also doesn't seem that rational arguments against torture doesn't work, it's immoral, it's illegal, it's counterproductive, have made much difference to the extent of the practice. In part, I'd like to suggest that this is because torture is part of a frame of meaning through which its proponents see the world. Indeed, arguing against it might even cement fears and anxiety, their fears and anxieties. However, I think there are ways that we can respond. And the first is the one just mentioned by Jessica Wolfe. In other words, a refusal to countenance fantastical scenarios such as the ticking time bomb and an insistence on focusing on real crises in real worlds. Justin Clement and Russell Gregg um, argued that 
One of the most disturbing aspects of this debate is that it is not and cannot be a debate at all. On the contrary, as soon as one believes that this issue can be debated and discussed just like any other, one is already lost. Once one starts arguing in such a fashion, then all that can be expected is the escalating intensity of claim and counterclaim, a slippage from legal and political concerns to moral problems of affect, the proliferation of distinctions without difference. For example, those allegedly clear eye re-examinations of the evidence which insist on discriminating between, say, sleep deprivation and amputation or burning of some other, or some other horror. It is not that such distinctions may not have their place, it is that they do not have a place here other than as obstructionist rhetoric. Second, there's a fundamental flaw to the ticking time bomb, bomb scenario that is very rarely mentioned, and that is, it is premised on the idea that time <coughs> is short. However, the fact is that preparing for torture, even in the ticking time bomb uh, context, is in fact extremely time-consuming and expensive. The whole ticking time bomb scenario relies on, having, on the state having already invested considerable time and money in training people to be effective torturers. After all, in order to make a real terrorist confess, torturers need to be experts in interrogative techniques. Years of training and preparation are needed to make effective torturers. An argument can be made, therefore, that it might be more effective to use this time to develop other non-torture responses such as techniques that require cultural awareness, linguistic competence, and self-mastery on the part of the interrogators. Um, Victorio Bufanqui and Jean-Marie Arrigo notes that, amongst other examples of social skill methods, Islamic clerics have replaced official interrogators by reformulating the religious commitment of some terrorists. Terrorists duped by their colleagues have cooperated with their captors when their exploitation was made evident to them. Chronically ill terrorists and badly wounded suicide bombers have become cooperative following successful medical treatment. In other words, real, what their work points to is real examples taken from the real world. The third is, I think, a much more basic point and that is a commitment to opposing torture, which is one that each and every one of us can make. Citizens need to hold their governments accountable for their actions, even in cases where the actual torture takes place in other parts of the globe. Each of us possess skills, spheres of influence that enable us to make a difference in our own world. Wherever we are situated as homemakers, academics, laborers, shopkeepers, novelists, artists, lawyers, doctors, and so on, we can make a difference globally. One of the many reasons for the silence of citizens concerning tortures, torture of um, suspected terrorists is fear. 
The label terrorism is used by governments and other official agencies to incite fear that can be then used to justify speedy and potentially counterproductive military operations. In other words, the word terrorist is so frightening in itself that it deflects attention and energy from serious considerations of foreign policy and excursions into civil liberties at home. As Dobkin expressed it in Tales of Terror, the term terrorist is more than just the descriptor of political violence. It is also a functional term that warrants certain strategic responses and precludes others. In other words, the public hysteria over terrorism has increased support for direct military action in foreign conflicts, which deliberately then contribute to growing terror attacks. So in other words, authoritarian versus egalitarian responses to perceived threats represent contrasting mediations of what it actually means to be human in the 21st century. Thank you.